Good morning, church. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, for those that don't know, my name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as the pastor of preaching uh, here at Village Bible Church, and it's a pleasure to have each and every one of you uh, with us this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to take God's Word in your hands and grab that sermon insert sheet uh, that's in the uh, bulletin for you to follow along as we continue in our series that we've entitled Fit Church, looking at different marks or attributes of uh, a healthy and uh, biblical church. And uh, We've done so over the last couple weeks looking at the importance of biblical preaching and what uh, we are to be proclaiming from the pulpit of of our churches, not only here, but uh, the four campuses of Village Bible Church meeting in the Fox Valley area, but also looking at uh, our theology. What do we believe about God? What do we understand about God? And and how does that impact our life? And I appreciate Pastor Steve uh, helping uh, me out last week in in, uh, presenting that to you and uh, learning more about it. But we come to week three in this part of the series where we ask, what is a healthy church? And we come to the subject matter of the gospel. And uh, we're going to do something a little different this week. Instead of looking at one particular passage, we're going to be looking at all of Scripture. But I want us to start our, uh, by focusing our attention on 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, grab that Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find that passage on page 961, page 961. We're going to speak on this issue of the gospel. Some of you uh, heard this last week, I had the opportunity to be on one of the Chicagoland radio stations uh, being interviewed for a little uh, over an hour about this subject matter. What is this gospel that churches talk about? What is this gospel that preachers proclaim? What is it, and what effect does it have in, in, in our lives? And one of you were uh, was asking what that experience was like, and I was sharing one of the hardest things is, is when you're being interviewed, you have a headset on, and uh, the producer is talking all kinds of words in the headset. Um, you've got a minute left and, and things like that. And I learned something in radio that I'd never known before. When a segment's done, a segment's done. And what a producer will do in the other room is turn the, the going out music, if you will, louder and louder into your headphones. And it will just drown you out that you forget absolutely what you're talking about because you're going to stop talking. That's what the producer's going to do. To which one of you, who I will not say, is the chief sinners of all of you, said this. We need to get that mechanism here at church. <laughs> that, that when you're done, you're done. We'll just turn up the music in your headsets and you'll forget what you're talking about and just have to stop talking. So pray for that individual. They're on their way to hell and I'm not sure there's an answer for them. But, uh, but we do want to invest some time this morning speaking to this issue of the gospel. And I want to tell you the very difficult task that is before me, and not only this week, but in the next couple weeks, because this week we're going to talk about the gospel, if you will, generically. What is the gospel? What effect does it have in our lives? But then next week we're going to talk about conversion. That is our response to the gospel. And then the week after we're going to talk about evangelism. Uh, what is our mission with regards to this gospel? What are we called to do? What are we called to uh, proclaim to the world uh, around us? But it's been described that the gospel is uh, shallow enough for a children to ba- a child to bathe in, but it is deep enough to drown an elephant. Do you get that? Shallow enough for a child to bathe in, deep enough to drown the largest of elephants. That is my task before you, to try to show you that uh, the gospel is a simple uh, thing, that it is simple enough for a child to understand, for him to, to, to bathe in it and, and enjoy uh, the immense blessings that come from it, but also recognize we are, this is an ocean 
of God's truth. And, and we are called, no matter how simple it is, no matter how deep it is, as a church and as a people, to be gospel-centered people and to be a gospel-centered church. But what does that look like? And, and, and how does that affect our life and our ministry? That's what I want to address today. And I want to do so by be focusing our attention on 1 Corinthians 15 to hear what Paul has to say about it. And then we'll jump into our, uh, our message this morning. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word as we do each and every week. And let's hear from the Word of the Lord. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I've preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I've received. Here's what he says the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, or or Peter, and then to the twelve. That he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That is, they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach the gospel, and so you believed. Father God, we ask your blessing on the reading of your word, on the proclamation of it. Lord, let it be as simple that the newest individual in this place can hear it and understand the gospel for what it is. And yet, Lord, in intention, let us understand that this gospel comes from your mind. And so we cannot even begin to think that we will exhaust the full meaning and understanding of it. Lord, hold that tension with me. Hold that tension with the listener that what we have before us is truly the good news of Jesus Christ. To you be the glory and honor for it, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we speak on the issue of gospel, one of the first things that comes to mind is that the gospel is the headline from heaven. And we don't think about headlines very often now, uh, as much with the advent of radio and television and, of course, the internet. But headlines were a big thing back in the day. When newspapers ruled the day, the headline uh, was that which would grip a nation with just a couple simple words defining maybe an incredible act of, um, of victory or, or a terrible loss of a, of a leader or a, a pronounced individual within society or some disaster. Whether good news or bad news, the newspaper article uh, would always begin with a couple words that would establish once and for all the news of the day. And for many of us, if we've lived long enough uh, with newspapers in our lives, we remember some of these. Let's just go through some of them quickly. Uh, Many people in 1865 would learn that Lincoln was shot uh, by a young boy who was advertising the reason why he should buy the newspaper. And so he would say, let everybody hear that Abraham Lincoln's been killed. Learn more about it in the newspaper. Next we would see uh, that man would walk on the moon. Seven years before you would be blessed with Tim Bedall, Buzz Aldrin, and uh, Neil Armstrong would be those 
those who would, would walk on the moon and, and it would change our understanding of our place in this world and the cosmos forever. And we see, of course, it deals with political issues. When the Berlin Wall fell in the late 80s, we would know that uh, the world as we know it would be a different place because communism was falling. Then we have, of course, who can forget uh, 9-11 and the uh, headlines from the New York Times that we had been attacked and the heinous crimes that had been done on that day of terror. And there's other events that take place. Notice, uh, of course, in 1945, we would learn that Hitler was killed uh, through uh, the newspapers articulating what had transpired. Some other ones that we see. Not all news is bad news, uh, and sometimes it speaks of us as a society, the, the, the things that have transpired that maybe never have come before. And of course, as us electing a, uh, a new African-American pastor, or pastor, president for the first time, um, would be announced on the New York Times headline. Let's move on. Some are t- terrible tragedies. Some are uh, events that transpire like that of the Titanic. People would hear, and this New York Times uh, headline would tell uh, the world not only what had transpired, but the New York Times would be one of the first newspapers to start listing the casualties, the name of the individuals, and people would turn to the newspaper to find out if their loved one was rescued at sea or lost forever. There's still other ones. Of course, who can forget uh, when our teams have won championships? Here's the dilemma. I I tried to look for a White Sox World Series newspaper. I couldn't find one. There was no, there's no evidence that the White Sox ever won the World Series. And so I went with one that there's evidence for, and that is uh, the Bulls winning their sixth championship. And, and we remember these things. We remember being a part of it because they're headline news. A couple other ones, we'll just flip through them quickly. Of course, who can forget when we got the news that uh, Osama bin Laden had been, had been killed and justice had been done. And then we can just go through some of the other ones uh, I remember the moments as a young boy in my elementary school when the Challenger exploded, and here's Time Magazine's incredible headline to it, and then Nelson Mandela being freed. I remember being at the church service the Sunday that Mandela was freed after years of imprisonment. I think I've got one or two more. Who can uh, forget uh, when Saddam Hussein had been captured? Headlines are big news, and these news that we have of headlines remind us of the greatest headline, not the assassination of a president, not the disaster at sea, not the championship win by our favorite sports team, but headlines that are of the greatest importance come from God himself. And, and during human history, God has been announcing over and over and over again a headline that he does not want us to miss. That headline is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants to remind us over and over again that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and he has done so by his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross of Calvary. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what is this headline that the Scriptures continue to call the gospel. The word gospel is used 95 times in the New Testament alone, so the Bible seems to make it a really big part of what the church's life should be all about. The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, and the word euangelion literally means good news. And so here the gospel is God's great news to humanity, that he has come to save sinners and redeem them back to himself. The Bible says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel uh, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if the gospel is this 
good news that God has announced as his headline, if it is the power of God that saves people, then shouldn't we as a church and shouldn't we as believers recognize and know what this gospel is, how it affects our lives, and how we ought to preach it and proclaim it? You see, healthy churches come to that realization that they understand what the gospel is and how to clearly teach it to the world around them. But to be able to do that, we need to recognize something. And I want you to notice in your outline this morning, the first point is that we must recognize that there is a dilemma that's facing the world with regards to the gospel. You would say, well, isn't the gospel pretty clear? Good news of Jesus Christ? Yes. But just as God announced in in the beginning the good news that was going to come through human history, through the person of his son, we have an enemy, the devil, who seeks to do whatever he can to distract people from the gospel to dilute its message and meaning and its importance. The devil distorts its requirements and destroys its effect on people. And while the devil will never win the victory, he sure does seem to win a couple battles along the way. He has deceived people into thinking what the gospel isn't and has been ascribed that the gospel is what people think it is. What I mean by that is they've been deceived from understanding what the true gospel is. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. If you have that pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 972. This was true in our day, and it's true in Paul's day, that people were deceived thinking that they understood what the true gospel was, and they were living in light of it, But Paul says they were pursuing a different gospel. On page 972 in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, here's what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here's what Paul says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Paul says that, number one, you and I can fall prey to different gospels. That just because we say we believe in the gospel doesn't mean that we have full understanding of what the true gospel is because we might be deceived. Number two, what Paul says is that if we find ourselves preaching or believing in a different gospel, we're cursed. That's not a good thing. I don't know if you know that in the human vernacular, that being cursed is not a positive thing. It's not a good thing. And so we as a healthy church, we as a biblical church, better know what doctrine and what Uh, gospel we're going to preach and proclaim and believe in. To do so, we need to recognize that there's a lot of gospels out there today. And I want to talk about some of the counterfeit gospels in this first point to help you understand that not all things called gospel are gospel. The first one I want to articulate to you is the one called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel was started uh, in the last century uh, out of the Pentecostal movement. And, And this one seeks to proclaim that the gospel of Jesus Christ entitles well-being, both physical and spiritual well-being and wholeness, to an individual. What I mean by that is what they do is they say that the spiritual and physical realities of human existence are one separable, inseparable reality. 
And so what they will focus in on is personal empowerment, pro- promoting a positive view of the spirit and body. You say, well, what does all that mean, Tim? That, that, that's a lot of information. What it means is that because you and I have, have been made in the image of God, we now have power, as God does, through our words to create things. So if you speak ill of yourself, you will be ill. If you speak words of poverty, you will be poor. If you speak words of, um, of brokenness, you will be broken. But likewise, in the Word of Faith movement, where the prosperity gospel comes from, if you speak words of wealth, you'll be wealthy. If you speak words of empowerment, you'll be empowered. If you speak words of, of uh, health, you'll be healthy. And your lack of faith will determine whether you're healthy, wealthy, and happy. Now, I want you to know that when you turn on much of your Christian television today, many of them will be proponents. In fact, one of the largest churches in America is a proponent with a smiling southern face of the prosperity gospel. That your words have power, and as a result of it, you become, listen, in the prosperity gospel, a gospel unto yourself. You no longer need Jesus. You, being an agent of God, can speak words of redemption into your own life. To quote uh, one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, he says that the prosperity gospel is crap. And I like that. I like it when guys get a little racy with their language, if you will. And that's what it is. And the problem is, is we take this stuff and we take it over to Africa and we take it over to Asia and we proclaim this stuff and say, you want a lot of things? Then take Jesus. And of course, anybody would take Jesus if it means we're going to get a new car and a new house and we're going to be healthy while the Ebola virus is eating us alive. We're going to have all of that. That is not the gospel. So notice number two. We have the prosperity gospel, but there's another one. I call it the program-oriented gospel. It can otherwise be labeled as the social gospel. This is the false understanding of the gospel that places its emphasis on social programs that seek to alleviate um, and help the welfare of those suffering around us. The social gospel came to prominence at the end of the 19th century into all of the 20th century. It was adopted by most mainline denominations and, and it would started for a good reason, a, a good effect. What it sought to do was apply Christian ethics out of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which we just preached through last fall and spring, to alleviate social problems such as poverty, the slums and ghettos, the poor nutrition and education, alcoholism, crime, and war. But here is where the social gospel fell apart. What the social gospel did, which was good, was put hands and feet to the heart of the gospel. To alleviate the hardships of individuals around us is to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the social gospel, somewhere along the line, went to all sociology, meaning it affected its change on people by totally um, drawing out of it the gospel of Jesus Christ. So sin and uh, uh, heaven and hell and salvation and the future kingdom of God were downplayed to a point of extinction and we were only called to love our neighbors as ourselves and to serve in soup kitchens and to uh, put clothing on people and that was it. Their local and their, um, their tangible needs were the only needs that our neighbors had. Let me tell you something, it fails as the gospel because while a full belly and a shirt on our back is something we are called to do for our neighbors. If we think that that will take care of the most pressing issue, it does not. 
the most pressing issue is people are in need of a Savior. Whether they have a full belly of food or whether they have a shirt on their back, they need Jesus, and we need to proclaim that, and the social gospel keeps itself from doing that. Notice there's the pluralistic, pluralistic gospel. That is what I could call, you could also put the politically correct one. This one says, and, and this one has the high priestess of Oprah, who uh, is predominant with this gospel. Uh, Oprah once said that uh, she believes all views of religion make their way to heaven. And she says, and she likened it to this, we're all walking up the same, climbing up the same mountain. We're just coming at it from different sides. And what we will know, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the, the Jew, the, uh, the Christian, and everybody in between is climbing up this mountain. And what we will find out when we get to the top of the mountain is that while we were pursuing different things, we were all pursuing the same God. Well, here's the problem. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter and John said, there is no name under heaven by which men can be saved. The name Christ Jesus. So Oprah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saddened to tell you that what you are saying is not the gospel. And here's the problem. What, what, the reason why this is such a popular gospel today is because what it says is we can be tolerant of one another. Well, the way you believe is okay because it'll get there. We just use different, uh, uh, different objects to get there or different names or different gods. But in the end, we will get there. Here's the problem with a tolerant gospel like that. We're all tolerant. You watch any daytime uh, TV show, and they'll come in, and they'll bring on a guest, and the guest will sit down, and, and the guest is a Satan-loving, cat-sacrificing, eating dog food individual, and people just, oh, it's so wonderful. Oh, legit. thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Then you put Tim Tebow up there, and Tim Tebow says, I love Jesus Christ, and the hissing begins. Ass! Who are you? Why would you say such a thing, you intolerant individual? We are intolerant. Listen. Not because we're intolerant. We are intolerant because we like it, as if we like it or something. We are intolerant because the Bible is utterly exclusive that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for humanity. And if we miss that, then we are going to adopt this pluralistic mumbo-jumbo that says, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. The only thing that's going to do is land a whole bunch of people in hell. And so we got to be careful of that. That's not the gospel. Notice there's a pragmatic gospel. You say, well, I, I know we're preaching the gospel and we're doing well. Let me bring something a little closer to home. Within the evangelical church, there are churches that will say we're preaching the gospel. But instead of preaching Christ crucified and Christ buried and Christ resurrected uh, for a changed life because of his grace... What churches are doing now is they're giving their people sermons upon sermons of self-help. So let's talk about money, let's talk about marriages, let's talk about parenting, let's talk about being good employees, let's talk about that. And I'll, I'll grab you a Bible verse and I'll show you how to be better at these things. And so people walk in and say, I'm struggling with my marriage and the preacher gave me advice how to be a better spouse. I'm struggling with my pocketbook and the preacher gave me a verse that helps me to be better with my money or to be a better employee or to have better relationships. Here's the thing. The Bible talks about all that stuff. But at the end of the day, listen, you will not be a good husband. You will not be the best wife. You will not be the best employee. You will not have the best relationships apart from Jesus Christ. 
So we have to have Jesus in that. We have to recognize we're sinners in need of God's grace because apart from that, we can do nothing. We will never be the spouse God wants us to be. We'll never be the parent God wants us to be. We'll never be the follower of Christ unless we get beyond this pragmatic, give me an answer to the most pressing issue that I think is there. Notice there's another one. That's the patriotic or political gospel. This, now we're getting close to home, man. Now the bombs are getting closer. This one is seen when we start thinking that the greatest need of our country is the need for a new president or a new majority within our House of Congress. And we begin to become more concerned about the polls than we are the precepts of God. We're more concerned, listen, about the Washington Beltway instead of people bowing the knee to Jesus. You see, this kind of gospel makes an overestimation of the USA that we believe alone that the United States is God's nation and only hope for humanity. And that we are, as a country, the main mechanism of redemption. It views the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as its end and democracy as the means to a fulfilled human existence. But it's not the gospel. It may be a good way to put government together, but it's not the gospel. Notice, I'm going to add one more, as if you needed more, but here's one more. The performance gospel. This is believed by many. You go to your workplace and you say to an individual, when you die and stand before God, why will he let you into his heaven? And the response will be, well, you know, let me tell you the things I've done. I, I was a Boy Scout leader for all these years. I walked a bunch of, I, I almost said old in the first service, a bunch of mature ladies across the street. Um, I, I was a good dad. I was a good father, or a good dad and father. I was a good husband. I uh, served in my community. Uh, I did a lot of good things. And God will put my good and bad up there, and the good will outweigh the bad, and I will be all good. That's a problem. The other way this performance gospel comes out is in churches that say, all right, the way you get to God is by doing a whole bunch of good works. And so you just pour in good works. You come to church, you, you, you participate in certain church activities, and, and you're baptized, and you take the Lord's Supper, and you do all these things. And when you get to heaven, God will say, wow, you really stayed on top of things. That merits you glory. That merits you heaven. You, you are now entering into the presence of Almighty God. That is not the gospel. That's far from it. So then the question is, what is the pure gospel? I want you across all those P's to write the word pure over them because the gospel is not in competition to these things. Those things fall short of what the pure gospel is. And the best way to help you understand what the pure gospel is is to illustrate it through a definition. Now, definitions are hard to come by, and so I've done my best to put together what I believe is the best definition of the gospel. So here I go. It is the good news that God, who is more holy than we can imagine, looked upon with compassion people who are more sinful than we could possibly admit and sent Jesus into history to establish his kingdom and reconcile people and the world to himself. Jesus, whose love is more extravagant than we can measure, came to sacrificially die for us so that By his death and resurrection, we might, through his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, repent and trust him as our Savior and Lord, so that we might be restored to God 
enter the community of Christ followers and become partners with God on his mission of restoration both in this life and the one that is to come. That, the scriptures tells us, is the gospel. And anything less than that is taking away from the purity of the gospel that the scriptures tell us to preach. Now, as we look at that and say, okay, now we understand a little bit more about what the gospel is, we need to do a highlight reel. We need to do what ESPN does and do those top tens, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to notice that the gospel wasn't something that God came up with in between the pages of Malachi and Matthew, the Old and New Testament. That God's angry in the Old Testament. All of a sudden, he gets a, wakes up on the right side of the bed and says, hey, I'm going to help people now, not just waylay them in my wrath and anger. The gospel has been a part of the heart of God since the beginning of human history. I want you to notice this, how it progresses. Notice that the gospel, in its defining moments, number one, was presented by God in the garden. It was presented by God in the garden. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, if you... um, Are new to the Bible, Genesis is in the beginning of the Bible, so go all the way to your left to chapter 3. I'll tell you what page here in a moment. Turn to page 3. Okay, page 3 in your pew Bible there. In Genesis chapter 3, we've got some things happening in the garden. Adam and Eve have been living in a right relationship with God. God has created them in perfection, and they have been walking and talking with God and enjoying God's uh, perfect garden. And uh, they now have made a choice to pursue the deceptions of the devil, to go against God's commands and eat from a fruit that God had forbidden them to eat from. And so they've eaten it, and now they find themselves under the wrath and judgment of God. They run for their lives, they hide themselves, they try to cover up their nakedness and their shame because of this sin. They no longer have a right relationship with God. God comes in and he starts pronouncing judgments because of their sin. He starts with the woman, then the man, and then the devil. And in Genesis 3.15, God announces for the first time this word gospel without ever uttering its word. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the devil, and the woman. Now notice what he says, between your offspring, devil, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What what God says is, hey, because of this fall that man and woman have fallen into, because of this sin, now we've got a problem. But here's my answer to the problem. Devil, you're going to do everything in your power to bring destruction to this man and woman and their offspring. I am going to produce in them and through them an offspring that is going to come. And listen what he says in verse 15. He's going to kill you, devil. You're going to injure him. And so what, that's a good place for a clap, okay? So what transpires is, in human history, the work of the devil trying to seek and destroy the promised one who is going to come. I don't think it's of any imagination or speculation to see that the devil surely is infatuated with the birth of boy babies all throughout the Old Testament, And so the devil, listen to me, is a part of a chess game with God that he is perpetually 10 steps behind. And what God did in Genesis 3.15 is he said what the great chess masters say in 15 moves, checkmate. I already know where I'm going to beat you. I already know how I'm going to beat you. And we're going to play 15 more moves. And in that 15th move, you're done. 
And so in the Garden of Eden, when the first sin befell upon Adam and Eve, God presented the gospel and he said, it's going to be one who is going to once and, all, once and for all deal with sin and death. Notice, it's prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. So you move through and you move out of Genesis and you start getting into uh, the life of Abraham and, and into the life of Israel as a nation and, and all of that time of the prophets. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, write this passage down, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, what's the job of the uh, Old Testament prophets? In 1 Peter 10, he says, concerning this salvation, you could put the word gospel there, concerning this gospel, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, that's the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now let's stop there for a second. So when Isaiah's writing, Isaiah 53, talking about this suffering servant, what Peter is saying is happening is Isaiah's going, I wonder who it is. I wonder what I'm writing, when it's going to be fulfilled. And so they are pointing to the coming of Christ. And over and over again, they're pointing to Messiah's going to come, the one who's going to come and redeem us from our sin and take care of this baggage of sin and death that is holding us in bondage. They kept articulating it, wondering when it was going to come into fulfillment. So we see it over and over again in the practices that God had of the sacrificial lamb that was to be offered, the scapegoat, the mercy seat, all of these elements of Levitical worship in the Old Testament pointed to a time when Jesus would come and he would make all things new. And so when he comes, that night in Bethlehem, when the angels announced to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and joy to the world, let the earth receive her king, and all of those Christmas carols is an announcement that the gospel now has been personified and would one day be purchased by Jesus Christ. Messiah's come. And now he has come in the form of a baby, and he has come to not only personify the gospel, but to also purchase for his people the gospel so that they might have a right relationship with God. And so notice, Christ comes, and Christ does two things. Number one, he does what you and I can't do. He dies for us, taking our place, enduring the wrath and judgment of God, so that you and I, who are the ones who should endure the wrath and judgment of God, now are free to have a right relationship with God. Christ did that on the cross. We need to rest in that. We need to be assured of that, that when we trust Christ as our Savior, our sins are dealt with once and for all. Okay? So Christ does that. And praise be to God for that, that Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, would enter into humanity, die on the cross on, in, in my, on my behalf and in my place, enduring my wrath and my judgment. He takes it as the perfect God-man. But he also personifies the gospel. And what I mean by that is he makes us have the ability to have a right standing with God through our justification, but he also shows us through his life how the gospel is to live, how it's to walk and talk, how it's to serve. 
what the gospel looks like uh, as we submit to our leaders and those in authority, as it looks like when we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And so Christ's life is gospel living through and through. And so the gospel isn't something we just receive once at our salvation, but it is the picture of what we are to look like all the rest of our lives. And by God's grace and by his power, it is the life that we can live because Christ has made it available to us. Now, as we move forward into the New Testament, that's the Gospels. Now move into the latter part of the New Testament, and you've got that this Gospel is being preached to the, uh, preached to the world by the Apostles. In Acts chapter 2, the first interaction, the first act of the apostles, Peter gets up and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. This Jesus whom you've crucified now is both Lord and Christ. Repent and believe. And on that day when he preached that message, 3,000 were added as followers of Jesus Christ because they recognized the preaching of the gospel for what it was, that which brings dead men back to life. And so when that gospel's preached, it's not just preached in good times, but it's also preached in bad. In Acts chapter 5, verses 27 uh, through uh, 32, uh, Peter, and Paul, uh, Peter and John are put before the great council, and they say, stop preaching the gospel. To which Peter and John say, we can't. We have to preach the gospel. Which is a wonderful reminder of the calling that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. No matter what it puts us in as society, no matter what culture thinks of us, we need to be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, all of that to be said, there have been some people who have been watching this gospel unfold. I want you to notice, while it was preached by the apostles, the angels have pondered this gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12... We just read from there. I didn't read all of it. But it says that the gospel has been preached to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, why in the world would angels be involved with the gospel? Why would they really care about the gospel? Here's why. If you remember in eternity past, the scriptures tell us that The devil and a third of the angels rebelled against God and his glory and his authority and tried to rebel against him, in essence, the first coup of of any government system. And they fail. And they fail miserably. And God takes that third of the angels and the devil and he throws them to hell and he consigns them to wait for their judgment where they will endure all kinds of of, uh, um, pain and suffering and anguish for all of eternity. And you see that as God, or as Christ interacts with, uh, with demons throughout his life. But here's the problem. The angels know what God does with sin. But then Adam and Eve show up. And Adam and Eve in the, are in the garden. And what do Adam and Eve do? They do the same thing the angels do, correct? They do exactly the same thing. They rebel. And I wonder if the angels, especially the, the angels in heaven, were watching and going, oh boy, here we go again. God's going to kick them out. God's going to consign them to hell. They've blown it, and God doesn't let allow that to take place, and God blows their socks off. He doesn't consign us to hell. He says, second person of the Trinity, my son, Jesus Christ, you're going to go and you're going to pay their penalty. I wonder if the angels just stopped and said, are you kidding me? 
The one we worship and adore is going to put skin on. He's going to make his dwelling amongst these people. And what they're going to do is they're not going to see him as God. They're not going to esteem him as God. They're going to beat him and they're going to abuse him. And they're going to call him all kinds of things. And they're going to nail him to a cross. And what is God going to do on that cross? He is going to pay for their rebellion and make them co-heirs to the kingdom of God. Now here's the thing, if angels who are in the presence of God ponder and are astonished by these things, then brothers and sisters in Christ, should we not also be astonished by the gospel of Jesus Christ? We don't have a clue as to the grace that God has showered upon us in the person and work of his son. We we can't fathom it. But this is what God has told us to do. Not only receive it, but to then proclaim it to all of those who are around us. Mark 16, 15 says, go all into the world and preach the gospel. Why? Because God tells us to. Why? Because it's the power of God that changes lives. The power to what? Give us riches, to take care of our earthly needs, to give us a better life and better relationships, to allow us to merit some right favor with God. No, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, raised on our behalf, that we might, by his grace, experience new life in Christ Jesus, where the old is gone and the new has come. And we do so then. With gratitude in our hearts, we proclaim the same message as our Lord and Savior did in Mark 1.15, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's our job. So if you're not preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel in some way on a regular basis, then you do not recognize the absolute treasure you have in jars of clay. We've got a treasure before us. Now, The reason why I don't think we evangelize is because we don't understand that there are two dimensions to the gospel. I'm coming to a close here. Don't you get nervous, okay? There are two dimensions to the gospel. And if I don't speak about this, then you're going to feel pretty bummed out when people don't accept the gospel. You're going to feel pretty broken down when it seems like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So there are two dimensions. The first dimension is a heavenly dimension. I want you to understand and recognize that the gospel is not only the good news that saves you and I from our sin, but it's also the good news that God is renewing for himself a world, a cosmos, a universe back to its rightful place. That God, if you will, the fall, listen, is like taking a jigsaw puzzle that's in a box and throwing it up into the ground, in, uh, onto the ground. And what God is doing is piece by piece putting that jigsaw back together to make the beautiful picture that it is. And there are times right now that we see that jigsaw puzzle all messed up. We're like, I see no picture. I've got nothing to understand it. Here's the thing you need to understand. God, day by day, is bringing this kingdom back into place. And he's doing so through our lives and through the work of his sovereign hand. And so you say, well, why does that heavenly dimension matter? Because God is sovereign enough to bring every molecule under his authority and to renew it once and for all. Then if that's the case in the human dimension, listen, if God is bringing the universe and all that's involved in this great celestial universe that we see and can't see with human eyes, if he's doing that, then is he not sovereign to save your friend 
who doesn't know Jesus? Is he not big enough to save the vilest of sinners at your workplace? Is he not big enough to bring revival and restoration to a land that is so lost and in need of a savior? You see, we think that the gospel is chained. Paul says the gospel goes unchained and we need to release it like the lion that it is to be able to break down every barrier, to break down every individual so that they may know that Christ is who he says he is. Is. And when we understand that God is in control, when we understand that God will be victorious, then we will be a whole lot more victorious as we share the gospel with brothers and sisters around us. But if you think that people are bigger than God, that people can thwart the will and plan of God, then you should be scared of people when you evangelize. But if the gospel is the power of God, The dunamis power, the dynamite power of God. Listen, when Paul talks about the gospel, he says the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that resurrecting power is now at your disposal as followers of Jesus Christ. Use it. There's some some people that need to, to hear and embrace the dynamite power of God. God wants to use you to do it. Will you take it to him? Finally, And I'll close with this because we'll talk more about it in the days to come. But there is one other thing that the gospel brings. We need to recognize that the gospel is a command. Every time that Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed it as a command. You have to do something. There needs to be a response. Yes, it's free. Yes, it's given by the grace of God. But there must be a response. You can't listen to the gospel and not respond. And so there are two responses. You can respond to Christ and say, no thanks, I'm going to do it my own way. Or you can say, Lord, I get it. Now here's the gospel. The gospel in its command is saying this. The gospel is saying that God is announcing to the world, I am God, you are not. I am king, you are not. I am holy, you are not. I am savior, you are not. I have life, you do not. All of these things, God is announcing that he is and he has, and man can either say, yes, Lord, I agree, or no, Lord, I rebel. And so how do we respond? There are two things that response involves. Number one, it involves repenting of your former way of life. Jesus started his earthly ministry and said, repent. You Listen, in your sin, you cannot turn to God and Christ Jesus and receive his gift of the cross without turning from your sin. You can't do both. And so if you're living for sin, you have to do what the Bible says in the about face and come and embrace Jesus as your only Lord and your only Savior. And so it means that you've got to get rid of the former things in your life. You can't take those things with you. God is not going to allow that. And so you repent of those things. I'm no longer going to pursue those things, and I'm going to pursue Christ. And in doing so, as you turn from yourself and turn to the Savior, you receive the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved. It is through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that anyone could boast. So let me stop here. We've talked a lot about the gospel. And I'm going to believe in the hundreds of people that have made their way to Village Bible Church today that some of you have never bowed the knee to Jesus. Some of you have never received the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. 
Maybe you've played with religion. Maybe you've kind of gotten involved with it. Maybe you thought my good deeds are good enough. The Bible makes it clear. You and I are sinners in need of God's grace. And we have to fall on our faces and we have to see Christ as the glorious one who died, who was buried, and who rose again that you and I might have eternal life. If you have never done that, we'll talk more about it next week, but if you've never done that, I don't want you to leave this place without the opportunity to do that. And how we do it here is we don't make a big pomp and circumstance. We don't have you come forward. We don't say you gotta get baptized or take the Lord's Supper. What it begins with is a, is a conversation with God that says, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. I repent of my sins. And I want to follow you. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. And that's not all of it. But that gets you on the road of what will be the greatest adventure of your life. And I would say if you're at that place and and you're, you're thinking those thoughts, that it would be better that you not do that by yourself, but come to somebody. Go to the person sitting next to you, the person that invited you. The uh, Come to me and, and let's talk about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and how it can totally change your life. That's the gospel. It's enough to allow a kid to bathe in, but it can drown the biggest of elephants, and that is true. And so let's pray and thank the Lord for our time hearing about this gospel, and let's go live in light of it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've taught us today. Lord, I pray that it's been understandable. I pray that it's been profitable for each of the hearers. Lord, I thank you for their patience and endurance and hearing this, Lord, I pray now that each and every one of us would live in light of it. For those that have never trusted you, Lord, today would be the day of salvation. That they wouldn't leave this place without a firm assurance that they have sought you while you could be found. Lord, I pray for the ones who have experienced this gospel, who are doing their best to live in light of it, who are resting in its provision and grace. Lord, Perfection isn't what you require of us because that perfection was found in Christ Jesus, but you desire a willing and contrite heart. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be willing, that our heart would be full of contrition to seek you each and every day, that our gospel would not be just what we did when we were young or sometime in the past, but the gospel work would be you personified in our lives Monday through Sunday that you might receive the glory and honor for it. Now, Lord, send us out in this place as lights of the gospel to a world that needs the gospel so that we might bring some into the kingdom of God so they may experience the abundance and the joy and the contentment that we have found in Christ Jesus. To you be all the glory and all the honor and praise. And all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Go and fellowship with one another.